This is Detroit Today on 101.9 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks very much for joining us. Last Wednesday, there was a tweet shared by the New York Times' Jonathan Wiseman. It essentially said that Detroit's Rashida Tlaib and Ilhan Omar of Minneapolis aren't Midwesterners. So much so that calling them Midwesterners would be like saying a congressional representative from Austin is from Texas or that one from Atlanta was from Georgia. The tweet was erased after the backlash that accused the author of being racist and indulging the idea that the word Midwestern is associated with rural and white rather than urban and black. Does that make sense to you? To dig deeper into the racial and social implications, the Washington Post Philip Bump joins us uh, again. Uh, He recently wrote a piece that analyzes how stereotypes of the Midwest being rural and white aren't really depicting the full reality of life here. Uh, Philip, uh, welcome back to the show. Um, uh, You'd be hard-pressed to find anybody here, I think, who would say uh, this city is not part of the Midwest. At the same time, that word, when you say it in other places, uh, carries other kinds of connotations. And it, 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 it's a divisive term, I guess, uh, for some people. Yeah, that's right. And I feel, I feel as though, at the outset, I have to say, I went to Ohio State, went to high school in Ohio. My mom used to be minister <laughs> in Macomb County. So I, I just want to establish my credentials right yes, off the bat here. Yes, so, anyway, you are well that, qualified right. to talk about this. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, I mean, look. The way that political reporters nationally, you know, myself included at times, use the Midwest is to refer to a very particular subset of Midwesterners, right? We generally use it to refer to white uh, people who live in Midwestern states, however Midwestern states are defined, which of course, as we know, is, is its own debate, uh, you know, tend to be more rural and or tend to be working in or outside of Youngstown, having been laid off. Uh, from jobs at auto factories or steel plants, right? That's that's the way that Midwest is used as a descriptor. And I think the fascinating thing about what Weissman did in his tweet was he sort of elevated the extent to which that is the narrow descriptor that political reporters use. He made a massive mistake, which is to assume that was an accurate way of describing what the Midwest was, right? That's obviously not something that encompasses all of what the, the Midwest itself is. Uh, but he did do a service in a way by saying, here's how political reporters think of the Midwest, which of course makes political reporters then say, well then, we're thinking about the Midwest wrong, because that's obviously not representative of what it actually is. Hmm. So you mentioned in your piece that the boundaries of the Midwest and the South aren't really well defined, and according to a survey done by 538, opinions of which they should be in or out vary quite a bit uh, for those regions. So it seems like you've got a couple things going on here. You've got this sort of notion of race and uh, urban versus rural, right. but you also just have a, a, a simple geography question at, at play here. Right. Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, you know, I mean, especially after 2016, Pennsylvania comes up a lot as being part of that sort of Midwest because, you know, part of what Midwesters come to mean is a little bit of rust belty, right? I mean, the, the two have some obvious geographic overlap in the two terms tend to get conflated as well. You know, a lot of people see uh, the Dakotas, even potentially Montana as being the Midwest, which obviously I think probably extends too far to the West. But, but that we have this same uh, uh, in uncertainty across the country in terms of what we're actually talking about when we talk about the Midwest contributes to the problem. But then, of course, all of this happens in the context of 2016, where Wisconsin, Michigan, and Pennsylvania were the central states to President Trump's election. And as such, we tend to blur this line even more because we want to talk about those states, those areas as being something important in this moment, 
but that then leads us to use sloppier and sloppier terms. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Moto on Twitter says it's the same thing the media does when they use language like working class and even generational right. labels like millennial. It assumes whiteness, and in the case of the latter, almost always assumes professional managerial class. Uh, talk about how we in the media have to be more aware, I guess, of the ways in which we use language uh, to be more inclusive or, I guess, or respectful of the fact that there is diversity among people who might uh, consider themselves part of these labels. Well, I, I, will, I will answer that question by using an anecdote, which is to say that I think a lot of our understanding of what happened in 2016 and what's going to happen in 2020 derives from a misunderstanding of how we use labels like working class in Midwest, right? There are two ways to look at what happened in 2016. One is to look at white voters who backed Barack Obama in 2012 decided to vote for President Trump in 2016 because he you know, echoed their rhetoric on whatever. The other is to look at the fact that a lot of people stayed home. There are 4.4 million voters nationally who voted in 2012 who didn't vote in 2016. A lot of them in those three states that flipped. A lot of those voters, about half of them, are non-white. So when we talk about what happened in 2016, there are two ways we can talk about it. Yes, we can talk about the white voters who went for Trump, but we can also talk about the non-white voters who stayed home. And when we talk about working-class, blue-collar Midwesterners, we're not talking about those non-white voters who stayed home. That's not that's, that's you know the 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 intentionality of talking about working-class, blue-collar voters in the Midwest is not to talk about those people who stayed home. But those people who stayed home may themselves have actually made the difference in the race. Mm. And I think that use of those shorthand terms has led us to fundamentally and broadly misunderstand what actually happened three years ago. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the, the blowback to this, I thought, was really interesting. I mean, I, I, I did think maybe it was an overreaction on a lot of people's parts, but, but I think that also highlights how raw people's feelings are about this kind of thing right now. I mean, it's hard for me to imagine that five or ten years ago uh, something like this would have gotten the attention it did. It really was not what uh, what the, the the people were actually talking about. This was about uh, the way that the whole thing was characterized. I think that says something about where we are. Yeah, I think that's right. And I think there's a, there's a couple of reasons that, that 10 years ago it may not happen. The first, obviously, social media, uh, which is self-explanatory. Yeah. But the second is there really has been a big shift since about 2014, and in particular the Black Lives Matter movement. We've seen this in polling, that Democrats in particular are much more sensitive to issues of race and, and how race overlaps with politics than they were five years ago. It, it, it's just, there has been a shift. The Black Lives Matter movement has been very effective in raising these issues to consciousness. And so it makes people who pay a lot of attention to politics in American culture be more aware of it, too. And so when Weissman, who, you know, I don't mean this disrespectfully, but who is from an older generation of reporters, when he makes these comments, I don't think he's also reflecting an understanding of where the conversation is at this moment either. Okay, Philip Bump, national correspondent for The Washington Post. It was really great to have you with us on Detroit Today. Of course, my pleasure. Yeah, great to have you back in the Midwest in a, you know, in a sense. <laughs> okay, uh, that's going to do it for us today. Uh, I will be back tomorrow, and I hope you will too. We're going to talk with Anna Clark, the author of The Poison City, about the Flint water crisis as part of our continuing conversations this summer about that topic in the WDET Book Club, where we are reading Dr. Mona Hanna-Atisha's book, What the Eyes Don't See. This is 1019 WDET, Detroit's NPR station, your connection to news, music, and conversation. We'll talk again tomorrow.